0: In order to have success in the playoffs, you know, it it really comes down to the, you know, star players playing well, but the role players being efficient and taking advantage of their minutes. Whether that be extending leads or being able to recover from deficits. Each game in itself is different. Each game is different. The coverages change, the scouting changes. The premise is to win the game, is to execute the coach's game plan. But each team's gonna make subtle subtle adjustments that uh, can ultimately affect the outcome of the game and it's up to the players to just go perform. Understanding how refs call games is important because it's not consistent with each referee. They don't all call it the same. Some people feel like certain contact isn't worthy of a call, and some referees feel like it is impeding progress. Welcome to the Lawrence Taylor episode of Pull Up. That's right, episode number 56. I'm currently in Denver, Colorado, in my hotel room. Just finished getting a massage, some treatment. A nice little recovery day as we get ready to take on the Nuggets for game two. Unfortunately, we dropped game one. They came out and performed extremely well. Joker was great. Murray had some big shots down the stretch. The role players produced. And uh, we were not able to overcome our turnovers, uh, our lack of transition defense, and many other things uh, throughout the game. So we're really looking forward to game two, um, making some adjustments, watching film. I'm sure they're watching film and making adjustments as well. And uh, it should be a very, very interesting game. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jordan Schultz to the Pull-Up Pod as always. Jordan, did you get to watch the game last night? I know it was extremely late on the East Coast. CJ, I always stay up. And when it's playoff time, I like to
1: rewatch. So I actually rewatched parts of the game last night after the game ended. So needless to say, yes. I was up very late. And then this morning when I woke up, I felt like I needed to get one more really good look at it. So I rewatched the last five minutes of the fourth quarter. <laughs> Uh, you guys were right there. I mean, Denver offensively was really good. I thought Murray was good. The pick and roll with Jokic was really good. And and obviously, you know, Cantor was terrific. It's it's a lot to ask whether it's him, Zach, or Myers to defend Jokic. And obviously, I saw late, it looked like you guys were trying to send more doubles, more aggressive stunts as the game went on. But he was really tough.
0: Yeah, we tried to mix it up a little bit. But I think he was just far too comfortable. Um, he, he had a night. He scored at all three three levels, he hit threes, he got to the basket, he did a couple mid-range shots, he facilitated, um, he really impacted the game. And uh, he's, you know, the reason why their team is so successful and they play through him and he empowers the rest of the team. And I think it was obvious uh, last night, but, you know, as the season progresses, I'm sure both teams will continue to make adjustments. Um, I'm, I'm sure they'll adjust on, on some of the things we were successful at uh, throughout the game. Obviously we had 18 turnovers to their uh, 13. They hit about 12 or 13 threes, and I think they shot about six or seven. They had about six or seven more made free throws than us, but it was pretty close offensively. The difference for us would be taking care of the ball and then defensively you know, being able to you know, make it more difficult for Joker.
1: CJ, I thought you guys were really good offensively. You had a terrific first quarter. I think Dame really found something in terms of his ability to live in the paint. He really was able to split those ball screens, the Denver bigs overextending, and then Rodney was really good as well, giving you a lift. I wonder, though, did Denver do anything differently than perhaps they did during the regular season?
0: I think they kept it pretty consistent. Um, They changed up a few of the matchups. Obviously, Murray didn't guard Dane. They had a Craig on him and then kind of rotated Um, Gary Harris got some action. Malik Beasley, Will Barton. They kind of threw different bodies at him. Um, From a pick and roll standpoint, they've been pretty consistent with how they guard pick and rolls on elite players, especially guys like us. You know, being up at the level of the screen, sometimes, you know, hedging hard and and staying there until you pick up your dribble or pass it. Uh, Backside usually loads up. So. Uh, bottom guys are rotating over, whether that's Millsap or Gary Harris or whoever the case may be. Uh, they encourage you to make that cross court pass as opposed to to hitting the roller. But I think you know some of the things we were able to get accomplished um, in Game One. Just looking at pick and roll coverages, you know, pace, you know, how you're coming off screens, all those things are uh, ways for us to kind of improve. And I think you know they'll change up some of their coverages uh, as the season progresses and as the series progresses based on the success they're having.
1: What about their guards, Murray, uh, Murray and Harris? I mean, there's a lot of pick and roll, and obviously they're running a lot. Both those guys run off a ton of screens, a lot of a lot of action for for you to defend, for Dame to defend. Were you, I guess, were, I, not not necessarily tired, but does that impact you at all with the altitude as the game goes on, as the series goes on? Does it matter?
0: I mean, I think the altitude does play a factor, but there's no excuses. Um, you got to be able to perform, you know, regardless of the circumstances and situation. You know, we had a few days off in between games, so um, we should have been better prepared um, mentally and physically. But um, give them credit. They outplayed us. They made big shots. They pushed the ball. They got in transition. Uh, they got what they wanted, and we had some mental lapses, some mental errors, and we have to be more locked in, more competitive from the start. Um, you know, not having those turnovers before the the end of the second quarter. You know, we were fortunate to only be down three points going into halftime. They could have easily been up, you know, eight to ten points, uh, depending on, you know, how they were able to capitalize, you know, on those fast breaks. So we just have to tighten some stuff up. Um, It's the playoffs, man. Everybody's in the best shape uh, they could be in at this point, 85, 86, 87 games into the season. Everybody's kind of banged up, but there's no excuses for for lack of execution and performance. And uh, we'll be better. I thought Rodney Hood was great and he gave us a big boost. He took advantage of his matchups and his opportunities and touches. I thought Zach was great. Seth gave us good minutes. ET gave us good minutes. And in order to have success in the playoffs, you know, it it really comes down to the, you know, star players playing well, but role players being efficient and taking advantage of their minutes, whether that be extending leads or being able to recover from deficits. So Jokic is like a
1: quarterback and what he does so well that very, I think very few bigs can do. Nurk does this too, to a degree, but Jokic is really special at it. Um, Jokic is with inverting the floor and his passing. I've never, I don't know if I've seen a team run so much pick and roll with the seven-footer handling the ball. What kind of issues does that present when you have a guy that can handle the ball and pass like that?
0: They're a very unique team. They're deep. They have a lot of guys who are... Uh, unsung heroes, so to speak. Guys coming from the D-League, guys who were second round picks or later picks in the draft who are contributing. And then you got a guy like Joker who's seven foot, he's a load. And he's able to hit threes. He's able to initiate offense, like you said before. He's able to be the the ball handler in a pick and roll, which is rare. I think, you know, there's only a few bigs in the league who can do that. Uh, Blake, Blake Griffin um, being one of those guys who can initiate an offense, but is, you know, 6'9", six, 6'10", and what makes them so special is their vision. They can score the ball. Obviously, they can impact the game uh, from an aggressive standpoint of attacking. But they can also draw so much attention and be willing passers to the weak side. I think that's where um, he made his difference. He, he scored 37, 38 points, but you know six assists in key moments to where he's kicking it out for threes to Beasley. He's kicking it out for threes to Craig. He's kicking it out uh, to Will Barton and, and different guys. And that's kind of empowering their team. And it's, it's something that we're going to have to adjust to, but it's a part of the game. You know, Great players are going to make great plays. You just have to try to make it as difficult as possible on them.
1: Yeah, well, what's interesting about the Blazers, or I'm sorry, the Nuggets, is that they are 13 and 20 when the opponent shoots 37% from three or better. You guys shot 37.9. You were right there. I think the, the turnovers were the key. Uh you know, they, you had four to close the first half, and they were just able to capitalize a little bit more. But, I mean, it's got to be encouraging when you played, I think you said, an average game as, as a team. And, and I would even take it a step further and say maybe
0: below average for your standards. And they played really well, and you still had a chance late. Yeah, we definitely had a chance. And I think you know, people get caught up in you know offense and defense and all those things, but you're not going to score every possession. Just have to try to get quality looks every possession i think that when you turn the ball over you're doing yourself a disservice because you don't get a chance to attempt a shot Now, whether you make it or miss it is irrelevant if you have turnovers that lead directly to fast break opportunities you're changing the game you're giving them a chance to not have to call plays you're giving them a chance to get easy run out baskets you're giving them a chance to find their comfort and not having to go up against a set defense and i think and we have to do a better job of that. And then on the flip side, we have to get more of those opportunities for ourselves where where we force turnovers, get out and run without the defense being set and are able to to take advantage of um, those opportunities. And I think that as the series progresses, um, both teams will make changes and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens down the stretch.
1: I, I I think that just to close, the length I thought that you, that, that, that Terry and, and DV and Tibbs and all those guys were able to throw at Portland or throw at Denver, Um, In terms of Harkless, um, there was a time when Harkless was guarding Murray, and I think Aminu was guarding Jokic, uh, which was interesting because there were certain possessions where it looked like that was working. And then, you know, they would get in a little bit of a rhythm and it didn't work, but then Mo got in foul trouble. I just want to see how a full game goes. Hopefully, if you're the Blazers, no foul trouble. But I thought the length of Mo and, to a degree, Al maybe bothered uh, them a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think that being able to have different guys um, with length, you know, cover their guards, and even to the, to a different extent cover their bigs, I think it makes a difference. Um, not getting used to the same types of coverages, not getting used to the same types of defenses, something that can impact some players. And in other moments, it's just it just so happens that someone was stuck on someone and they got to stop. So it's not always, you know, the defense. You know, sometimes it's just good offense that misses yeah. a shot.
1: yeah. Um, Okay, so we have a lot of Game of Thrones to recap. And knowing from looking at your Twitter profile and seeing CJ McCollum as the Night King really got me thinking, who is CJ McCollum in Game of Thrones? Because you're not the Night King. You you know, the Night King is a mean, bad, angry guy that just wants pure (laughs) darkness. And CJ McCollum, at his worst hour, is still not that level. So... I have been I've I've been going back and forth trying to find your character. And here's what I got. I got a mix of Jon Snow, a little bit of Arya, and perhaps and this might sound a little weird, but perhaps some Danny as well. Uh as oh, in Daenerys. As in Daenerys because there's a lot of like I don't know, some of the bravery being courageous but also knowing when to defer You know, you talk about Danny with
0: John, you and Dame. I I just, I, what do you think about that? I mean, am I way off base here, CJ? I mean, you're close, but I'm just not a Danny fan right now, just based on what's going on in the episode. And the way she's, you know, kind of manipulated her way to the top, I don't think she's a great leader. I think she needs to do a better job of listening. Although at times she has deferred and has made proper decisions, I think that she's too focused on taking over the throne instead of doing what's right. And I think that's that's going to become an issue later on in yeah. in Game of Thrones as we get closer to the season finale. I think her love and passion for the throne, um, understanding that obviously incest is very prevalent in Game of Thrones, especially for the Targaryens. When Jon Snow basically told her, like, "Hey, look, nephew, I'm the I'm the rightful heir." Uh, nephew? He's her nephew. That's she's yeah, she's the auntie. So basically, when he told her that. I'm the heir to the throne. Blah, blah 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 blah. Her first thought was not like, "Wow, we've been we've been <laughs> we've been romantically yes, involved." It was the throne. I'm your aunt. It, it was. Are you saying that you basically want to take the throne? You no. Know, how convenient for you know basically two people to say that you're this and you're that. It's like, you, why are you so caught up on the throne? Like you could just live happily ever after. Take over the world. And move on. So that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But I think Jon Snow's personality, his bravery, I think at times he's a little too courageous, you know, growling at a dragon. You know what I mean? Like he's he's faced death. He's looked death in the face a lot of times. And I like the in, intensity. I like the determination, but he's just got to be smart. You know, you got to understand when you're beat, understand when you have a chance to succeed. But I think those, the combination of those three people with Arya's determination. I like how she's Mastered her craft since she was a youngster. She set her mind towards a goal and has been able to slowly accomplish it. She's been able to adapt in different environments. She's been able to overcome, you know, some serious setbacks and, you know, essentially rise to stardom, so to speak, and bring one to the, as some of the comparisons have been on on Instagram, she's been able to bring a title to the land, you know, bring a title to Winterfell, bring a title to her people. And now she has a chance to eliminate the woman with green eyes. Mm. So
1: a lot to unpack there. One, I feel like Jon Snow's always down 20. You know, he's all like, and you so, literally saw him <laughs> surrounded by 20 or 50, um, what are they, zombies, White Walkers, I guess White Walkers. And he had to be bailed out once again by the dragon, but he was chasing the White Walker king, the Night King himself, and he would have been dead, mm-hmm. but he got bailed out. So again, he's down twenty, down fifty, whatever, and he comes back. The guy's actually been dead. You said he stared death in the face. He's been dead. He comes back from that. At some point, you know, you just wonder how many lives this kid has. Okay. Secondly, we haven't even talked about Arya, but for her to do what she did, and and you know, this is spoilers for anybody that hasn't seen it, but to kill the the Night King in the manner in which she did, are we? I mean, she has to be the greatest warrior of, like, television history. Considering her size, her makeup, she's not a first-round pick. She's a late-rounder. She's an undrafted free agent, probably. And yet— She's, she's a mid-major. She's a mid-major prospect for sure. I'd say she's a low-major. Low-major. Ooh, I like it. She's I like, like it. She's, you know, I, I don't want to say Lehigh, but, you know, she's, she's a Patriot League.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she's gone from Patriot Leaguer to perennial all-star. That's, you're well, talking about, and that's why I started to think the kill about of the, the kill of the
1: decade. Well, that's why I was comparing. You know, I know you haven't been all star yet. You're going to get there, but that's why I said Samaria Stark was CJ. I mean, she's she really has progressed. She's had five masters. The fact that she was able to use all those incredible tools, you know, her, her dad as like her master, her, her first master teacher. Then she had the faceless guy. You know, obviously that's how isn't that how she infiltrated the, the White Walker king? Isn't it? Wasn't she portraying um, one of the other generals?
0: I'm not sure how she did it. Honestly, I think that's that's one of the theories. And, and before we started recording, I was researching theories as I was watching film, um, understanding exactly what's going on in this Game of Thrones. Because I think there's a lot of question marks in the air. You have to go to the next episode and and kind of pause the trailer to see who's still alive, and then you have to really figure out if. The faceless woman, being Arya, is going to actually dress up again, right? To potentially end King's Landing. Like, is is that what's going to happen next?
1: Well, I I think what she's done is is uh, is Herculean effort. I think that she's my favorite like master teacher she had was the faceless guy, even though he was nuts and he tried to kill her because that's the move that she used to kill the Night King, where she drops the sword. And then, you know, kills him. I mean, that was, that was like, <laughs> that was crazy. But also, I feel like, I feel like she's not done. And I am a little concerned, quite honestly. She's definitely that She's not a, done. I, I, I am concerned that she's going to die because she's, she's had that, you know, her moment in the sun now. And you have to wonder if, if, if this is it for her.
0: She's 100% not done. And I think, I think you hit it right on the head. The faceless guy taught her Key survival tactics—you know how to move around in silence, basically. How to operate as a blind person, uh, being able to maneuver her way through that room where she was essentially staring death right in the face. Uh, pun on on staring death right in the face as she maneuvered her way through the room <laughs> to eventually get out of there. The Hound had to come save her. And let's let's rewind for a second. I can't believe the Hound—he really froze up. He, he froze. froze. He froze up in the biggest moment of Game of Thrones. But the war, the war that could essentially end end their existence. He froze up and had to be encouraged to rise to the occasion.
1: Yeah, but he he rose to the occasion to save her, which is he is is kind of, you know, he redeemed himself. Uh, I think Vince Carter, as we were talking about before with producer Joe, I think he might be the three eyed raven. Um, Brand, <laughs> you know, announcing his 22nd season, the guy. Just to get it, put it in perspective, uh, your teammate, Anthony Simons, he was born a year after Vince joined the league. That's crazy. So that's, uh, I mean, that's hard to believe. But, but Bran, you know, for all the talk about uh, people hating on Bran – uh, and I understand it. The guy continues to operate at a high level. Um, any other, any other, <laughs> <laughs> any any other comparisons? I mean, Vince
0: is is definitely one. Who who else? I Maybe mean, a little D Wade. Man, I don't know. D Wade's a little bit more active than Brand. You know, Brand just kind of chilling, hanging out. You know, he's adventurous when he, you know, enters other creatures, other beings. But he's just so unknown and closed off to the world. We don't really know what's going on. So he's more of a. Trying to find a proper comparison for Bran, it's hard because he's not very outspoken, but he's witty. When he does speak, it's very witty. He has those one liners that are really changed the game. <sighs> that is a tough one. That's a tough one to find, but it has to be an older spokesman in the league. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess, I guess you could say, you could definitely say he has a little bit of Vince in him, maybe a little bit of Shannon, maybe a little bit of Shannon Frog. It's deceptive. Okay. He's smart. He's wise beyond his years. But he's also witty because sh- Shannon is hilarious. I,
1: I don't, like, does Bran, uh, you know when he said, oh, okay, I'm going to go now. Like, he's he just, he's so matter he going? of fact. He's very, uh, I guess in that sense, like British, like very, you know, dry. He went into the
0: Three-Eyed Ravens' um, souls, essentially, and took over their bodies. But was that like a... Before we get off Game of Thrones and move on, was that like a, a foreshadowing of something that's going to happen in the future? Was he setting something up at King's Landing? Maybe. What was he – what was that about? Do you do you have any ideas what that was about? No. Have you read any theories on what that was? I'm not smart enough. I do think crazy. that uh, – f-
1: Well, no, I don't know. But I do think that um, the other dragon that got seriously injured, Jon's dragon, my wife was telling me because she's a big fan. We had a big watch party the other night that uh, – He's still or that she is still alive because she was apparently she was in the, the trailer of the next episode which I didn't even pick up on. Who's
0: still alive? Well, both dragons are. Yeah, both dragons and uh Ghost. Ghost the is wolf, still alive. Which I re- I'm very concerned as a dog. about Ghost. The wolf which I referenced as a dog is still alive according to according to some of my friends. They said the Ghost and both dragons are alive. And I'd be remiss if I didn't wish uh, Leona Mormont, may she rest in peace. She had an epic ending. Epic oh, ending. the, the I'm, 9 I'm, the, re- I'm really happy. When she killed the, the giant? The nine, ten-year-old. That girl
1: Yeah, was right in the so eye? special.
0: Yeah, that was dope. She, she was, was dope. special.
1: You know, we kept waiting for her to have that, like, crazy moment because clearly she had a lot of juice in the community. But she showed why. She really stepped up. That meant a lot to me as well. That meant a lot to me. But I I was not happy when Ghost went out on the front line, and they just sent him out there to
0: die. You know, I mean, have some respect, John. Like, (laughs) Ghost played with John. (laughs) They sacrificed Ghost, but Ghost understood what he signed up for. He knew it was at stake for the community and the culture, and um, the results obviously were in our favor. You know, those that are supporters of Ghost, it was in our favor, and— Grey Worm. Grey Worm is still up. alive, so he, he, he can go on his vacation with, with his light-skinned bae when this is all said and done. If he, can, if, he can, if he can get through these next couple wars, he may be able to ride off into the sunset.
1: You mean uh, the Unsullied dude? Yeah. Uh, Grey Worm. Unsullied. I forget what the, the... He's a monster. I love him. Yeah. Love him. I love her, by the way. Uh, Miss Indre, Missinde. Miss She's unbelievable. His girlfriend...
0: Yeah, she's, yeah. Mi- <laughs> she is <laughs> I unreal. Melisandre, Melisandre. Oh, wow. She's
1: a great, she's a very talented she's, first round pick.
0: She, she plays her character extremely well, extremely well. And I think some of the wit that she showed uh, while they were down with the crypt and the crypt keepers, a little dungeon area, uh, basically saying that, look, y'all can talk about Danny all y'all want, but if it wasn't for these dragons and Danny, everybody would be done. Right now, it would be over. The one thing I wanted to mention again was, why was this so blurry? Why was the battle scene so blurry? And how come the Night King didn't talk at all? How come we didn't, get to, we, we didn't find out any more information about the Night King? He had this army, he could raise people from the dead. He had all this power and control, and his part had no words. That's a good point.
1: I didn't think about that. The the like, uh,
0: the blurriness like, bothered me too. I actually just it figured it might have been my TV. Yeah, I think the whole world, a hundred million people were watching and thought it was their TVs. And everybody's looking at all these high definition TVs they have, and trying to figure out why their big screens no longer working properly. It was it was a sick moment.
1: I was not happy with that either.
0: I I, I wish
1: the uh, Night King would have talked. He would it would have been cool to see him speak. But but uh, you know what was cool the. Um, a Grey Worm was interviewed by New York Times, the actual actor. Just, 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 I like this. He said, and this is during all the, all the battles of, of shooting this crazy scene or these crazy scenes. He said, I, I, thought I, was gonna pa- I thought I was going to pass out. I was on the verge of passing out most nights when we were shooting this. So I thought that was pretty cool because even the actors were stressed out when they filmed this. I mean, think about how crazy <laughs> it must have been to film all that.
0: They said it took 55 days. Um, to film that uh, essentially that scene is basically the whole scene is a battle so, so that scene was like a seven game NBA final series yeah but it's just like the way it ended was insane but throughout it it's like basically the first three quarters were meh and then the fourth quarter you're like wow it's amazing it's like the Jordan switching hands at the end he hits the shot it's like LeBron hitting a game winner you're like wow that was dope Did didn't you- see that coming
1: Did you see the Patriots Falcons Super Bowl meme as it relates to Aria?
0: (laughs) Yeah, they basically, they had her as the greatest player in in every situation and said that the Night King blew a 3-1 lead. And did you see Dame?
1: The Dame one, the meme?
0: Yeah, I I, I seen the meme with Dame. That was hilarious. And the funny part is that he doesn't even watch Game of Thrones. So you had to kind of explain it to him like, bro, this is what's what's going on.
1: Did he understand like
0: how big of a deal it was? I told him, I said, 100 million people watched this episode. Um last night and don't be surprised if you have like an extra 100,000 200,000 followers just because of the memes did he get it did he get it i think he understood it now i told him like 100 million people watch and you have to pay um for it for the channel to watch game of thrones i think that's when he was like wow this is is a big deal i'm like bro you need to be watching this wow we got
1: to get dame on it because i mean who's dame is dame a combination of, like, all our favorite
0: characters? He's, he, he basically is a combination of a lot of characters. Hard work, determination, fearlessness, good leader. He has a lot of the qualities of some of your favorite characters. And Jokic is basically the giant. <laughs> He's a giant with great wisdom. He's, like, a I think giant. some of his teammates call, yeah. him, call him Tom Brady. He's got a very good basketball IQ, and surprisingly nimble and fleet of foot you know he for is. a guy his size like he can spin he is. spin and pivot yeah he is. And stuff Ke- but
1: kevin McHale clowned him though he said during the game you know don't don't worry big fella you're not gonna win you're not gonna get on the cover of gq you don't because you know he had that crazy play where 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 you had the the flavor one and he was like adjusting his nose after and mikhail was like don't worry it's okay he doesn't need to look good he you know he's not gonna get on gq
0: yeah, I didn't mean to hit him in his face. He moved the ball. He had the ball there, and I was trying to get my my patented strip, and he moved the ball. He got me. But, you got? You no know, Credit him for a good play.
1: You got one of the patented strips that wasn't called, and then you got another one that was called that really shouldn't have been.
0: Yeah, it's tough, man, and there's been a, a big emphasis on player engagement with referees, and we understand they're humans. They're not going to make mistakes. The game is happening so fast, and players are manipulating calls, and over-exaggerating certain body movements. But, you know, I just, I had a good conversation with Ken. I told him, I said, you're gonna have to check that one out at halftime. I didn't foul him, that was all ball. And then, you know, to start the second half, he came up to me, he was like, I missed that one. He's like, way too much ball for me to call that. And I just said, thanks. And it was just a a good exchange of, you know, I, I reacted and I ran up to him and I was like, come on Ken, like, I'm telling you, I had all ball and you didn't really have a great angle to make that call. And, you know, the good refs can admit when they're wrong. Uh, they can review the play and say when they're wrong. And good players, I think when when you commit a foul and you don't think you fouled and you go back and watch the film, I think you should be able to admit when you actually committed a foul. And I think that's where I'm at uh, right now in my life. I'm at that stage where sometimes I know I fouled and I'll raise my hand or I'll tell them like, yeah, you're right, I did get him. You know, in the instances where I don't think that I I fouled the guy, I'll rewatch it. And if I feel like the call was correct, I'll tell him. If I feel like it wasn't correct, I'll tell him. I think, but now we're at the day and age to where players' protest calls so much, it becomes annoying to the referees, and they're not sure, you know, what you're trying to accomplish at that point. It's like, you know, did he really get fouled, or is he just complaining as always? And I think that the consistency or lack of consistency with guys complaining so much has, you know, driven a wedge between, you know, referees and players, and now you're looking at the the Houston Rockets um, Warriors series to where the underlying theme now is, like, who's reffing the game, like— the fact that Scott Foster is reffing this game should not be a byline on the bottom of the TV, but that's what it's kind of evolved into, because of some what the Rockets call controversial calls historically with him. And looking at the the James Harden situation, James Harden uh, basically was, according to referees, he was fouled on three three-point attempts, three or four. And they didn't allow him proper space to land or whatever the case may be. And I think the confusion there is that since they missed those calls and admitted to it, that the casual fan thinks that the refs are manipulating the game. And it's like, you can't really tell. Like, if a guy makes a move and he shoots it, sometimes his legs do come forward naturally. Sometimes there's a natural swing. Sometimes the players are exaggerating it. But it's hard for the refs to really tell if it's an exaggerated movement or if it's a natural movement. I think that's what causes the... Disparity and the disagreements between refs, fans, and players, but
1: yeah, um, it'll
0: be interesting to see you know what happens with this game tonight. I look forward to watching it.
1: You hit it to copy you, CJ, right on the right on the head. What do you always say? You hit it right on the head.
0: That's my specialty. Someone basically said they would pay me if I didn't say it. Yeah, uh, in an episode, and it's so hard for me not to say it that I no,
1: you you don't normally get that's one. That's the in, problem. You don't, don't really per say per it episode. anymore know you're not saying it anymore. I need you to say it once an episode, You know, maybe twice.
0: Once an episode, I'll definitely say it. More show in a minute. But first, support for Pull Up with CJ McCullum comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their websites. Create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash pull up to get 10% off.
2: Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash audio. Visit IXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
0: Okay, back to the show. We can talk about the referees, we can talk about your opinion on how players complain to the referees, and then we need to talk about these series that are going on besides ours. Boston, Milwaukee, Warriors. Rockets.
1: Well, my issue with the refs is, here's the deal. If you're an NBA player and the playoffs are as good as they've been, to your point, why are we talking about Scott Foster? I mean, that's the problem. The, the basketball has been so good. The individual play has been so good. Some of the coaching has been great. Some of it hasn't been so good, but we should be talking about that. That's what's interesting. The fact that we have these subplots – Wondering who's refing which game and Scott Foster, well he's refing game two of Rockets Warriors. That's a problem because James Harden's fouled out four times in the last two hundred and sixty five games. Three of them were ref by Scott Foster. Like that that should not be the main talking point, but yet it is and and it bothers me. Uh and it's a shame because the basketball has been really good. And I think it's it's really unfortunate.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's very unfortunate. And I think the media also feeds into it because just it's one thing for the Rockets to talk about referees and how they don't agree with calls and things of that nature. It's another thing for ESPN and different outlets to literally put who's refereeing the game on the bottom of the ticker. Like that's that's going the extra mile to make it like a point of emphasis, to make it something that is discussed in further detail outside of what's actually going on on the court.
1: So what I would say is that we are, as media, I think the media feels a need to report on it because it it's obviously interesting for fans. I just wonder how much it's taking away from the game itself. How much is it taking away from the basketball, from the series, from the individual play? You know, like the NFL has its own problems with referees. We saw it in the playoffs with New Orleans and in the Rams, and it's been a disaster for the NFL trying to sort out some of these subjective calls like pass interference. And basketball, especially at this level, is moving so fast that you, you know guys are going to miss calls. But when the referee is no, when Scott Foster is more known than the ninth player on the Rockets, we have a problem.
0: I agree. I agree. I think essentially until players take responsibility for their actions and, and, and understand that no one's perfect, we're not going to be perfect basketball players. We're not going to be perfect in execution of the, of the coach's game plan. Referees aren't going to be perfect referees. They're not going to call every foul or every three seconds or every illegal screen according to the rule bit. Book because a lot of things are happening too fast. So we just have to meet each other halfway. Obviously, protesting calls is going to happen. We're going to protest calls sometimes because it's a part of natural emotion and reaction to a human being who's extremely competitive and trying to win. It's another thing you need to demoralize the referee, yeah. you know what I mean, to, to really stand them up. And I think the same thing goes for referees. We should be allowed to respond to certain things within reason without receiving a technical foul, and they should be able to handle us responding, but we should also not take them to the limit or to the point to where we have to have receive a technical foul or they have to continuously tell us, hey, walk away, walk away, walk away. But I think that we do deserve a right to have an initial reaction, initial emotion of, oh, come on, and then it should be over. CJ, I don't understand the right-to-land
1: rule, I I feel like it gets more and more complicated and perhaps unnecessarily. But every time I think i got to figure it out, I really don't. And obviously it's been a big issue with James Harden in the past, and certainly um, you can make the argument that players like Harden are abusing it. We saw in game one, though, he did not get those calls three or four times against Golden State. Are you clear specifically on the right-to-land rule yourself?
0: I have a clear understanding of what it means. Basically, you need to be able to land after you shoot a three pointer. Like someone's foot shouldn't be coming underneath your foot. You know, similar to the Zaza, Pachulia, Kawhi Leonard situation. And I think what James was upset about is that that happened to him on multiple occasions with Clay Garden. I'm kind of walking underneath. I'm trying to get a great contest, which it was a good contest. It's just that James didn't have room to land. I think the problem is that on those threes where he didn't have room to land, it was an actual foul. But then on some other threes, James may, may have kicked his leg in a more exaggerative manner, which drew the, you know, well, he kicks his legs every time. Well, he does kick his leg often. And most of the time, it's natural. A couple of times, it's unnatural when you're trying to draw a foul. But I think the problem is that people look at, well, they missed those three calls. They did miss those three calls. And those three calls could have affected the game. But he also was fouled, you know, on, on other occasions and received 14 free throws. And I think CP was mad because, Although I think on the 1-3 late in the game, he didn't have room to, to land and he received a technical foul for it. I think he exaggerated before he had time to land. I think they would have called the foul if he would have just naturally let him hit him. But I think he kind of torqued his body in a manner and the rest probably didn't want to reward him for that. Whether that's fair or not is is up for debate, but I think that that played a factor in them not calling it. But it looked like a foul based on where I was sitting. But once again, I'm not a referee and I don't really understand you know all the rules... According to the guidelines,
1: I think the referees are to blame, but also the players are to blame. To what you were saying, CJ, about you know when every call is disputed, and it seems like every call is at this point, and it becomes I think really hard for the refs to you know validate certain guys complaining, and that's why you were saying I think how you understand like if you if you react to a call, most of the time, if not all the time. You're really gonna feel like you were right about something in that in that situation with like with Ken Maurer last night that you felt, you know, hey, just go talk to him. You know, h- here's what happened. But most guys, I'd say, oh, 95% of the league reacts to every single call, and it's it's really hard to watch, and it gets frustrating. And I think the referees probably don't listen anymore because they feel as if no matter what they call, somebody's gonna be yelling at them because every single call basically is being disputed. And I don't think that's good
0: for the NBA. Yeah, I think that is an issue. I think that some some players complain so much that when they are right, the ref probably isn't listening to them because they've complained on so many calls that we're actually the right call. And I think that kind of rubs the officials the wrong way, as it would any human being. Um, We're all imperfect beings, so you can try to be as unbiased and fair as possible. But there's some things that are going to piss off any human being, regardless of, you know, what position you may hold
1: yeah do you you know how you were saying how um the broadcast will say here's the ref crew for tonight here's the crew chief etc our players i mean I, I think we've talked about this obviously you know who's who's reffing each game but do you ever change a strategy based on who's reffing and, and maybe you'll get this call that another guy wouldn't give you
0: i mean i try to play the same way you know regardless of circumstances but i think that understanding how refs call games is important. So understanding what refs call freedom of movement, because every ref doesn't call freedom of movement the same way, which is basically impeding someone's movement, you know, off ball, you know, when you're trying to come off a screen or something of that nature. And then all refs don't call two hands on the waist, but some refs will be very, very stringent on those types of calls or three-in-the-key or illegal screens. So I think understanding what refs call those things are important because it's not consistent with each referee they don't all call it the same some people feel like certain content contact isn't worthy of a call and some referees feel like it is impeding progress
1: i wonder if there are any referees that um you know have it out for certain guys like they feel like they're going to target somebody tonight <laughs> they're going to make an example of that tonight i mean that's what tim donnie well it's
0: obvious the rockets feel that way yeah that's
1: exactly the rockets feel that way about scott Fox. exactly but that's what Tim Donahue said. And listen, I mean, I don't know if anybody out here is, has read Personal Foul, his book. I, I, I try to read basically every basketball book written. In that book, he says, and take it for what it's worth, again, it's Tim Donahue, that, you know, refs would target certain players. And and that would be like vendettas. And you have to wonder if Scott Foster is that guy with the Rockets. I mean, again, we're, we're talking about human beings here, emotion. The fact that it has gotten this bad between that organization and this referee is is not by accident. I mean, th- this has developed over time. And when you watch Scott Foster, when you, when you watch him ref the Rockets, it feels like sometimes, man, like, did he really make that call? <laughs> I mean, it's
0: hard to know if that's true or not, honestly. I'm sure there's some truth to everything. I always say there's some truth to every rumor. But uh, I feel like the refs... I think they do a good job. Historically, they've done a good job. It's it's impossible to make every call the right call, but I do think there are certain biases to allowing leeway to certain guys. I think a guy like Draymond, he can react a certain manner, you know. Yeah. More, he can voice his opinion a lot more than certain players, and not be asserted a. Well, he's built foul. up, and then I think some referees. Yeah. Go ahead. Right, his reputation of. You know, exploding on referees, but I think some referees are more quick to call a technical foul and some are more prone to let it go because that's who he is. You exactly. know, he's very demonstrative. Yeah. He's very emotional on the court. So I think that some players get the benefit of the doubt in those circumstances and situations. And whether that's fair or not is, again, up for debate. Well, when Draymond, when a call goes <laughs> against
1: Draymond, it's almost like he'll run 30 feet, you know, the other direction with his hands on his head, wondering how it could possibly be a foul. And I always say that You know, basically no NBA player has ever committed a foul like that. You know, at this point, that's what it feels like. Guys feel like, you know, that's no way. Not on me. Not on me. I like when players will raise their hand, you know, like, yep, that that was obvious. Um, And I think even a play like last night with you and Nicola, there is a reputation, CJ. And and maybe it's uh, maybe you know about this. Hopefully you do that. Like CJ McCollum, not a dirty player. C.J. McCollum's not going to go out and hurt somebody. Maybe somebody else gets a flagrant two on the same play. You happen to get a flagrant one.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, depending on who you ask that. But, I mean, this in this case and circumstance, I was making a play on the ball. He just is so crafty. He had the ball in front of his face, and he moved it, and I swiped up. And uh, I think that since the referees yeah. know me, to know what type of person I am, what type of player I am. I think that that definitely factors in based on the, the reputation that you have. Like, if you have a reputation for setting legal screens and a guy falls down, no, that's, that's chasing over the screen. Nine times out of ten, they're calling a legal screen even if you didn't hit him. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's <laughs> – I'm just thinking how many guys set legal screens. A lot of guys, you know, will, will push that, that boundary. You know, just like – it's almost like uh, illegal screens for me are akin to, like, holding in, in the NFL where it happens on every play or there's some version of it. Right. You just have to pick which ones are, you know, more egregious. You know exactly um what have you been watching in terms of the series because I like for me Boston Milwaukee game one that was the biggest shocker I, I i did not see that coming um I was in Milwaukee earlier this year when they beat Boston, and to me they're the more complete team i I got to give Boston a ton of credit for what they did in game one
0: honestly, I expected Boston to win um Not necessarily game one, but I think they're going to win the series, mainly because of the depth they have. Like, you talked about how deep Milwaukee is. I think they're a deep team, but from an experience standpoint, this Boston Celtics team beat Milwaukee Bucks last year without Kyrie Irving. And everybody knows how good Kyrie is as a player and, you know, what he brings to the game. But historically in the playoffs, like, Kyrie's been excellent. Like, he's He's elite in the regular season, but he's really good in the playoffs. He's clutch, he hits big shots. His winning percentage is unbelievable, especially in early rounds and in game ones. I think he's like 29 and three or something crazy like that. So I just felt like with the ability to put multiple guys on Giannis, you got a Morris twin, you got Al Horford, you got Baines, um, you have like size players who can not stop Giannis but slow him down and just kind of throw different bodies and I thought that would be a factor. And then obviously Malcolm Brogdon not playing, you know, hurts them. You know, him not being in the lineup right now, I think that affects their roster. And yeah. I think until he comes back they're gonna they're gonna be in some trouble.
1: Yeah, no there's no question. Um we'll see if he's ready to go game three. I'm not convinced he is. Um he's he's a good player. I mean fifteen points a game, forty percent from three consistently defends, um you know, secondary ball handler, sometimes primary. It, you're you're absolutely right. I, I just like in that series, I, like I look at a guy like Al Horford, and, and if you rewatch Game One, or if you if you're able to see some of that Game One, if you if you have if you missed it, his impact defensively it cannot be overstated. I mean, you know, he he is so good and so smart with how he covers that. I, I think he's worth like a significant amount of points. I mean, Giannis goes seven to twenty one. In game one, with a ton of rest, I a lot of that is out Horford, and a lot of that's probably Brad Stevens too. But you know, H- Horford is a guy that continually finds ways to impact games.
0: Yeah, Horford is a guy who historically has done a little bit of everything. You know, Mister Versatility. You know, he rebounds, he passes, he scores when you need him to. He can guard. He can initiate offense from the pinch post el- elbow area, and uh, you're talking about a guy who has single handedly. You know, change this series with his ability to guard. He's strong, and he has that three-point range. So on the offensive end, you have to account for a guy who can score on the box, mid-post, and stretch it to three-point line. So I look for him to get a, a large payday this summer. I think he has a player option. Yeah. Um, I look for him to get another, another, another large payday because I think the Boston Celtics are good enough to go to the Eastern, if not the NBA Finals.
1: How, you mentioned Kyrie. how good is Kevin Durant? In I mean. This might be the best stretch of his career, and that's saying a lot, by the way, because the guy has been unbelievable. He's been elite. Over the last five games, so obviously five playoff games, 55% from the floor, 40% from
0: three, 91% from the line, over 40 points a game. Yeah, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know right there. You're talking about a seven-foot player who can shoot off the dribble, who has a back-to-the-basket game. And... Since he said, I'm Kevin Durant, yeah, he showed, he showed exactly what he meant by who Kevin Durant is. Like, I'm Kevin Durant. And then I'm, now I'm going to really show you, like, why am I discussing anything about my basketball game? Like, he's always said it. Let's just talk about basketball. Let's talk about how I'm playing. And now everybody is talking about how he's playing.
1: So he did, for me, kind of what Dame did in the first round, which was, you know, Westbrook wanted to play this game of me versus you. Whereas Dame said, "No, let me just go out and hoop." That's kind of the same thing that happened with Beverly and KD. Where KD said, "I, I don't, I don't care about anybody else. I don't care now. I don't care about Harden in this series. I'm, I'm just gonna do what I do. I'm Kevin Durant, and that's really all that matters. I'm the best player in the world, and he has been exactly that.
0: He has, and his coaches backed him. I think they're, they're running more stuff for him. They're giving him uh, more of a license to kill, so to speak, like uh, 007 to where he's coming down firing. They're running a lot of plays for him and." He's been effective, and arguably the best player um, in this playoff. And compared to the historic playoff performances, it's been unbelievable.
1: Kevin Durant might be—he might be Daenerys the Dragon and Jon Snow.
0: I mean, <laughs> how do you beat this guy? He's your favorite rapper's favorite. How rapper. How do you make this guy uncomfortable? I, I don't. <laughs> I, I just don't know anymore. He's unbothered, and I think Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams uh, post game. Pressure we just talked about there's a few special players in the world to where there's not much you can do to deter them. It's just about whether or not they miss. He's one of those guys to where you can game plan for him. You can double team him. Um, it doesn't matter. He's raising up and he's shooting right over them because of his athletic ability and his skill set. It's it's so versatile. He has everything. He's one of those few players that has everything.
1: He's unbelievable. I mean, he, he really he, – you look for different words, different superlatives, and you try not to have – too much high, high, uh, hyperbole, especially in this day and age, we have like social media. But he is—he is, he is really—he is a marvel and a and a, and a true basketball wizard. Um, on the other side, James Harden, you know, he has not had a great playoff stretch. He struggled from the floor. He's not getting to the line as much, and this actually goes back the same, really the same example every year in the playoffs since 2016, uh, four years in a row now, where he has not gotten to the line as much in the playoffs. Is that a manifestation of less possessions? Is that the way refs are calling it? Let's
0: put Scott Foster aside for a second. What do you make of that, C? I think it's just teams adjusting. You you really just have to focus on one team, uh, one coverage. Uh, There's no games in the future, and I think that the Utah Jazz, for one, they played behind him, so it was hard for him to shoot step backs and get get a lot of fouls because they were essentially escorting him to the basket to shoot floaters or throw the lob pass or throw the corner pass. So that was a unique series in which the coverage was unlike anything he's probably seen you know in in all his years as a basketball player he's probably never seen someone just purposely play behind him and allow him to drive <clears throat> drive right so where, so he could shoot his step
1: back or get to the hole i mean the way utah guarded him is really how you would never teach anybody to play defense just give somebody a, a straight line drive i mean that's that's yeah,
0: it's crazy it was unique it was a really unique coverage and i think that's kind of factored into why he shot less free throws. I don't think it's the way the game's being called because they call the game a similar fashion. I think it's how they guarded him. And obviously, he shot 14 free throws against the Warriors and only averaged 10 and a half yeah. um, per game in the regular season. So he got three and a half more than what he's, for four and a half more than what he's accustomed to.
1: Yeah, but if you go back to the Utah series shooting like eight a game, um, and really the last four years in the playoffs, it's been around seven and a half, eight a game. So he's been down on free throws. That's why I was yeah. asking. You know, no, I
0: agree. I think the Utah series was interesting, but historically, I just think that teams are scouting him. You yeah. know he likes to draw fouls, so they're just trying to figure out how to not touch him.
1: So this this question applies to both you and the Rockets. I think, you know, we have, you know, we have game twos now where both teams would love to come back and seal a game on the road. Houston, more so, but still, you guys as well. Have you avoided that hangover? Effect. In Houston's case, obviously, they feel like they got you know, cheated out of a game. But for you guys and the Rockets and, and teams that lose game one when you're, when, you, when you're right there, how do you avoid the hangover effect and just put it past you, but also take something from that game to improve upon? Hey, you
0: take a lot of stuff from, from game to game, understanding what happened in that game, understanding what you could have done better, and how to go forward of, of changing you know, some of the turnovers, some of the mental lapses you had. But each game in itself is different. Each game is different. The coverages change. The scouting changes. Um, The premise is to win the game, is to execute the coach's game plan. But each team's going to make subtle subtle adjustments that uh, can ultimately affect the outcome of the game. And it's up to the players to just go perform. So for us, we just go out there and hoop, man. Play as hard as you can. Execute to the best of your abilities and live with the results. And I think the Rockets, although they may feel like they got jobbed, the reality is that you're down 0-1. So those feelings have to go out the window because you have another game to play and an opportunity to to even up the series. And I think that's our mindset. That's their mindset. And if you ask some of the great ones, I think they would approach it the same way. Mm. My name isn't James. It is literally Jimmy. <laughs> that was funny. That was funny. He played really well, too. He did. So he was he aggressive. Did. He knocked down shots. He, he really led them to victory. And and that series just got a lot more interesting as they head back to Philly because you know those fans are going to be jumping. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, he's he he hadn't played that way since
1: game 1 of the Brooklyn series. So that's big time. Um CJ, I got to tell you, man, it is uh if if we had a game of thrones show where that's all we talked about, we could have 10 hours of conversation. But uh you have to get ready for game 2. And um probably if I know you as well as I think I do, you're probably going to go watch some more conspiracy theories on Game of Thrones anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm get I'm I've seen most of them. I'm going to watch some more film, break down some clips that I got sent to me, and then check out these games that are on TV um, tonight. But I've had many conspiracy theories sent to me. I'm actually going to send you this hilarious video uh, that I've uh, been sending out to people uh, about Game of Thrones, giving a breakdown, essentially uh, a power five, if, if you will, basically, a top five of, uh, what's going on in Game of Thrones and who has the best chance of taking the throne. Needless to say that everyone believes it's Aria right now. Aria is the, the one who's going to take the throne. And I'm really just looking forward to getting some rest tonight and getting ready for uh, Game 2 tomorrow. It should be a fun one, man. This is a, a great time of the year where you get to go compete. Everything you work for in the summertime is right in front of you. you just got to go take it.
1: So you'll probably go spring skiing tomorrow in the Rockies and then go play Game 2? <laughs>
0: Uh, exactly what I will not do. And I'd be <laughs> remiss if I didn't, sh- didn't shout out uh, Greg Popovich. I think Greg Popovich is on the hook for an extension. Yes. So uh, hopefully yes. we get some more years of, of seeing him. Although, you know, playing against him is, is always a treat because he's such a good coach. You know, the game needs him uh, to stay around and hang around. Once again, we want to thank all our listeners out there for tuning in to the pull up pod uh, Delightful to be able to share you know, some of my experiences on the court with you guys, some of our thoughts on Game of Thrones and just all things basketball and what's happening in this, in this world. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, shout out uh, the director John Singleton, who passed away at the age of 51. He was the first African-American nominated uh, director for Best Director at the Oscars, and he actually was the youngest director to be nominated for the award at, at the age of 24. He's done Boys in the Hood, among many other movies. So. Another legend who's gone far too soon. But as we continue to progress and, and, and move forward, looking forward to seeing many more producers of color, you know, in, in those types of ranks and lights. But you can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, radio.com backslash pull up with CJ, or wherever you get your shows. And don't forget to
1: Hold up. pull up.